Thank you very much. We've had some good times. Uh, Dave taught my sons to fish um, when we were back in uh, in Ambridge. Um, yeah, he's right. I, I'm sort of a you know northeaster. We won't, we won't talk, really talk politics, but let's just say that we we don't always see eye to eye on everything. But we are friends. Uh, we are friends in the gospel. Um, well, let me say just a quick uh, prayer to settle myself down, and then we'll we'll get into this. Um, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable. In thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Okay, so I guess the first thing I'll say is uh, welcome to Ebola and Christian Persecution Central. Um, you know, Houston doesn't often make national news, but um, this week we are. So uh, so if you're not from Houston, wonderful to have you here. And in case you're wondering, yes, the weather is always like this. Um, all year round, we just we, we enjoy, um, yes, this balmy, dry, breezy weather. Uh, well... The title of my talk today is Risky Business, Jesus Meets Control Freak. I want to start by reading a passage of scripture, and uh, then we'll come back to it a little bit later. So this is Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 22, and here's what it says. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Now, some of you may know this story. It appears in Mark and also in Matthew as a story of the rich young ruler. It, it may be fairly familiar to a lot of us. And I've known for a while that I wanted to talk about this passage because I think it really gets to the heart of the matter. And it's a very helpful par- I mean, it's not a parable, a helpful story because it's so often misinterpreted. And the way that we misinterpret this story says so much about how little we understand ourselves and how little we understand uh, the ministry of Jesus, how how little we understand the good news, the gospel. Um, Augustine uh, used to say that we do not interpret scripture, that scripture interprets us. And when we hear this story, as with many, uh, both parables and stories in the Bible, how we interpret it and apply it to our life says a lot about, again, how we think about ourselves And how we think about God. And so I want to kind of deconstruct um, some of that today. But all that being said, I needed a sexy title, right? Because it's Mockingbird. And I I couldn't just be like the rich young ruler, like blah. You know, so I had to sex it up a little bit. And so uh, Dave and I had a phone call. And we were turning it over and over in our minds. You know, control and risk, humanity, God, you know, sexy. And suddenly I had a vision from the Holy Spirit. Um, of a certain uh, young Scientologist dancing to old-time rock and roll in his underwear, and I was like, yes, that's it. Um, risky business, risky business, which just fits so perfectly. But I have to say, I actually do think it was a Holy Spirit moment because the more I thought about risky business, and by the way, raise your hand if you've seen this movie, Risky Business. Okay, talk to Father Browder afterwards because you need you have some confession to do. Um, but the more that I thought about it, 
I realized that Joel, the Tom Cruise character, is the rich young ruler. They're the same, and I'll, don't worry, I'll unpack that. And that they're both us. That, that uh, they have something to say to us. And I've been thinking a lot about, you know, 1980s high school movies the last few weeks again after all this Mockingbird. And what I think is there's really three great 1980s high school movies that feature male protagonists. Now that seems oddly specific, but when you think about it, right, most 1980s teenage movies are either uh, uh, ensemble pieces, right, I think Breakfast Club or really Sixteen Candles, or they feature, feature female leads, usually Molly Ringwald, because she just did, you know, tons and tons and tons of, of uh, 1980s movies. But I think they're really great, again, 1980s high school movies with uh, lead male protagonists. I, mean, I don't know why it has to be a guy, but I'm a guy. And, and the first one is Ferris Bueller's Day Off, which, anyone seen that recently? It is so good. You know, you, you watch these movies again, and, and you're like, it's really as good as I remember it being, and it's so good. And the second one is Say Anything. Remember that Lloyd Dobler? Remember uh, um, in, your, you know, in Your Eyes, him holding the boom box, trying to get her back? And yeah, yeah, thank you, Robert Perkins. I appreciate that. Um, Cameron Crowe uh, directed that. That's a great, um, great movie. And there's been a lot in the press about it recently, because it just had its 25th anniversary. It's 25 years old. That may make you feel old, or maybe not. And then the third one, I think, is, is Risky Business, uh, which of course is, is Tom Cruise. And, and I really think of those three, Risky Business, I don't know if it's the best, but I think it has the most potential for ab reaction. And what I mean by that, I think that there's the most uh, possibility in terms of it connecting with us emotionally and saying something about who we are and how we live and, and sort of uh, what stresses us out and where we might find some some hope and some peace. Now, why do I say that? Well, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, like I said, is incredible. It's so well written and it's funny and uh, poignant. Um, and that scene where they go to the Art Institute of Chicago, do you guys remember that? Like, it's just a beautiful movie. And my boys love that. I felt like a really good father the week after we watched that. I, I picked up my oldest son Jackson from school and we're just driving down Westheimer and he goes, Dad, can we get a jumbo juice? Um, now, of course, that's the voice that Cameron, you know, Cameron makes as an impression of his father, except Jackson does it a hundred times better than I do, so, um, but I felt like a good father in that moment. But in any, in any event, uh, Ferris Bueller's Day Off is great, but I don't think we can really relate to Ferris because he is so free. You know, he's so self-possessed. He is so devil may care. He just does whatever, you know, he steals his best friend's, like, father's $15 million Ferrari and talks his girlfriend out of school and, and you know, they, they, he pretends to be the sausage king of Chicago and he ends up on a float singing Twist and Shout and, and I, God, I want to be him. You know, don't you want to be Ferris Bueller? I, I want to, to just not care that much and, and to see the world as my oyster and to live life to the fullest. But that's not just, that's not me. If that's you, then I need to hang out with you more often because you probably have a very interesting life. But really, our way into that movie is Cameron, right? Is his friend who's hopelessly bound and anxious and has this fraught relationship with his father. And, and at the end, it really ends up being about him, you know, where he kicks the car. By the way, that house came up for sale in Chicago recently for like a million bucks. I, that house was so awesome with the glass walls. Some of you have like no idea what I'm talking about. <laughs> but most of you have seen Ferris Bueller's Day Off, right? And it's on Netflix, by the way. It's on Netflix and Say Anything's on Netflix. 
Um, risky business is not. But uh, Cameron is the one that we can relate to, but he's not the protagonist. He's not the main character. And then Say Anything, again, Lloyd Dobler, he's not nearly as smart or as interesting as Ferris Bueller is or as Joel is from Risky Business, but he's so pure in heart. You know, all these 25th anniversary essays that were written about Say Anything uh, noted this, that he... Um, he just didn't feel much pressure either. He just was who he was, and he gave away his heart uh, at the drop of a hat to this woman who kind of stomped all over it. And then he goes back in the middle of the night with this Peter Gabriel, and he gets her back. And and he's just uh, he's um I w again I wish I was him. He's he's so self possessed, and he, and he um, his yes is his yes, and his no is his no, and he's uncomplicated. And one of his friends in the movie says, you know, you're the you're the last of the good guys. He's just a good guy. Um, and I wish I was him, but I'm not him. And then we get to Joel from Risky Business. And I think uh, that this is a character that I can relate to. This is a, a person that makes sense to me. Here's a nice, and we're, I'm gonna show you a clip. He's so young, he's crazily young, but he's a good kid, he's nicely dressed, he's clean cut, kind of all American, a kid who has it all, you know, good family, big house, he's got the clothes, he's got, you know, good earning potential for the future. He's not a great student, he's an okay student, but he, he should have it all together. Like all, like, not like all of us, but like most of us. Like, let's, let's be honest, you know, most of us are kind of middle, upper middle class. Things are generally okay. And yet, this poor guy, Joel, is just ruled, uh, entrapped by a combination of fear and animal instinct. And the first scene, which I'm not going to show to you because it's completely inappropriate, um, but it, it, uh, it captures this perfectly. It starts with Joel having this dream of coming to this house and the doors open. He's explaining this dream to his friends as they're, um, you know, sitting around playing poker. And he says, this, the doors open and I walk in and I hear the shower running and I go to the shower and there's this incredible woman in the shower and she wants me to come like wash her back or something. And so I go toward the shower and I get in this fog of steam and I can't make my way through and then suddenly I finally make it through the steam and I'm in my math, my high school math classroom and I'm three hours late for my exam and there's four minutes left and this is it. I'm going to fail math and I'm not going to get into college and I'm not going to have any future and my entire life is going to fall apart. Um, I'm, on my wrong, I'm on the wrong page, am I? No, this is the right page. Weird. Um, and uh, that's that I can relate to. You know, that's 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 me. I know, like him, that I'm. I know what I'm supposed to be doing, right? Joel is supposed to be in his classroom, in his dream, taking his test, preparing for his future, doing everything right. And yet in his dream and in his life and in my life and probably in your life, what you know you're supposed to do is consistently sabotaged by your humanity, you know, by your weakness, by your lack of self-control, by your baser instincts, by your intractable emotions. I can relate to that. And honestly, it scares me. I scare me. 
I know kind of who I'm supposed to be and how I'm supposed to act and what I'm supposed to do, and I consistently find myself not doing it. And you know, now that I'm married and I have kids and things that I'm responsible for, it just doesn't scare me for me. It scares me uh, for my family. And Joel is scared too. You know, as he is recounting this dream to his buddies, he says something that I think we can all relate to. Which is, you know, except for those of us who, uh, I don't know, are, are very self-possessed and, and um, I don't know, for the Ferris dealers out there, maybe this doesn't make sense to you. <laughs> um, but he says, I don't want to make a mistake and jeopardize my future. And of course, he's talking about college and getting a good degree and getting a good job and having a nice house and family and all that sort of stuff. But, but, um, but that, I relate to that too. I'm scared of making a mistake and jeopardizing my future my job, my marriage, my kids' future. And it begs the question, to what degree are our lives and our choices defined by our fear? Fear of doing the wrong thing, fear of making a, a, mis, a misstep or a mistake. And it, it reminds me, back when I was in um, youth ministry, and this is probably more, again, of younger people, the big question is, you know, what should I do with my life? And if they're Christians, then it gets spiritualized. So like, you know, what is God's will for my life? What does God want me to do next? And the vision I would always have in my head when they asked me that question was like, uh, um, and I felt this way too sometimes, is like I was standing on a rock in the middle of a, a raging river. And I, and, and I knew there were rocks all around, but I couldn't see them because they were just below the surface. And my job was to find that next rock that I could step onto. Um, and if I couldn't find it, if I, could, if I missed that, I was going to fall into that river and just be washed away. You know, very much a sense of God's will and of life in general as being something that has to be gotten right. Because if you don't get it right, if you don't get the right grades and go to the right school and get the right job and move to the right place and send your kids to the right school, then it's all just going to fall apart and that life is just going to wash you away. And so, of course, it creates, well, first of all, it's a desire, you know, I, I know Aaron talked about this this morning, but a desire for, um, you know, you want to control everything, but also kind of a paralysis. You know, you're on this, you don't know what to do. You don't know which way to go. So why do we, why do we live like this? Why, why do we do this to ourselves? What are the messages that we've internalized that make us like Joel? that uh, have caused our lives to be um, controlled by fear. Well, I want to show you just like a two-minute clip. It's probably the only two-minute clip in this movie that I could actually show. Um, but that's not true. It could be true, though. Um, let me play this real fast, and then we'll, we'll talk about it for a second. Oh. And just to set this up, this is early in the movie. If you remember Risky Business, uh, Joel, his friends, he has his dream, and his parents go away for like four or five days. And that's when kind of the risky business starts. But this is a speech that his mom and his dad give to him before they leave. And I want you to pay attention to what they say. And then I'll see the, all the little hidden messages. Joel, did you get your SAT scores yesterday? Yes. Well, how'd you do? 597 math, 560 verbal. If you wanted to, could you take him over again? I guess so. Great. Joel, I want to show you something. Honey, did you pack my mace? 
It's in your cosmetic case. Joe, do you hear something odd? Something unpleasant? No. A preponderance of bass, perhaps? No. Is this the way I left the equalizer? not some toy for you and your friends. You can't use it properly. You're not to use it at all. My house, my rules. Joel, I spoke to Bill Rutherford. Turns out he interviews for Princeton. I'll never get into Princeton. I already arranged an interview. Friday night, the 4th, at the house. Ah, oh, Jesus, Dad. Honey, tell them about your involvement with future enterprisers. They look for that sort of thing. There's 50 for food, which should be more than enough. Another 50 for emergencies and an extra 25 just in case. And don't forget to water the plants around the patio and the ficus in the dining room. I wrote all that down. It's on the refrigerator door. Uh, Dad, you want me to start your car? The car will be fine, Joel. I mean, for the battery, I mean. Joel, please, you're not to use my car. You're not insured for it. Use the station wagon. Use my car, honey. Okay. Joel? We understand each other? Okay. Oh, um, darling, as far as the house is concerned, just use your best judgment. You know we trust you. Have a great time. Be good. We will, honey. You too. Bye. Next scene is the you know the, the next scene is, is the famous is the famous scene of him dancing so we're not going to show that okay so I don't I don't want to be too terribly hard on these parents you know you 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 know you go away for the weekend and your kids but I, I want to think about it a little bit metaphorically and some of the things that they said to their son before they left you know it starts off with his mom what did you get on your SAT and if you're a high school junior or senior is there any single thing more closely tied to your sense of well-being and identity than your SAT score. And, he, you know, he got a, what did he get, like, some between 11, 15, 1200. Not great, not terrible. Next question. Uh, well, can you take them again? <laughs> you know? Translation, you're not good enough. Did you mess up my stereo? I sense a preponderance of bass, you know, which is a sort of tied into the suppression of Joel's uh, high school male animal instinct. You know, if you can't use it properly, you can't use it at all. You're not to drive my car. Translation, you're not important, or at least you're not as important to me as my equalizer and my Porsche. What you want doesn't matter, but what I want matters. You're not important. 
And then his father says, uh, I set up an interview. He, he set up an interview with Princeton for his son, even though he knows with his son's grades and his SAT score that he has no chance ever of getting into Princeton. And you can sense, you hear Joel's uh, frustration and, and uh, despondency, like, Dad, why would you set up a Princeton interview? I have no chance. But I think the message in that is uh, you should be different. I wish you were different. I wish you weren't so disappointing. I wish that um, I could have higher expectations for you and that you wouldn't be such an average person. Now, maybe you had parents like that, or maybe sometimes, honestly, um, you are a parent like that. I know that sometimes I am with my sons. But even if you didn't, or you try your best not to be, my guess is that you have a little voice in your head harping, a little voice which is constantly reminding you, constantly pointing out to you all the ways that you don't measure up, ways that you're not good enough, ways that you're not important, ways that you should be different, all the things that you should and shouldn't be doing, all the things that you should and shouldn't have done, all the mistakes you've made and the dire consequences which are almost surely to come from those. You know, a, bu a buddy of mine's been Alcoholics Anonymous, they talk about living in the wreckage of the future. You know, always imagine these bad things that are going to happen. And if, you're, if you are a Christian, unfortunately, you probably, at least in your darker moments, you equate that voice in your head with the voice of God. The voice that says, try harder, be better, be more, get your, get your act together, get your life under control, secure your future, the future of your family. Don't mess up, don't let your guard down. Try not to be so disappointing all the time. Um, I remember there's a moment in my life where I was, I was sensing that most acutely. Um, I've been reading uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer's Cost of Discipleship, which is a great book, but if you're feeling insecure, it's not, it's not terribly helpful. Um, but, and those of you who read it know what I mean. Like, I love Dietrich Bonhoeffer, but man, I was feeling crushed. And, um, and I, said to a, I said to a friend of mine who I really respected, I said, I just feel like um, God is standing me, over me with a whip, demanding that I be something that I'm not able to be. And he said, well, you know, um, uh, God's love is a perfecting love, and he wants you to be better than you are now. Thank you so much. That was very pastoral and helpful. Joel and we, the truth is that we are living under the weight of some pretty serious expectations. And the truth is, I, I want to say those are real, right? If you look in the Bible, and I, I, I'm sure that you know, people are talking about this, that what we call those expectations, Christianly speaking, are is the law, right? Thou shalt, thou shalt not, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, you know, like I often say at St. Martin's, whenever I meet someone who's like, well, you know, I don't really go to church, but I live by the Sermon on the Mount. It's like, I'd like to see how that works. Can I spend some time with you? Um, you know, be perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect. That's a real thing. That's a, that's a, we know it. It's written in our heart. It's in our conscience. And, and yeah, even if you're not a Christian, there is such thing as a conscience. And there seems, there actually does seem to be, uh, despite the fact that we fight it all the time, there seems to be a set of rules that the world works best by. You know, like uh, polyamory isn't such a great idea. And um, it's good for kids to have uh, their parents around. And, and uh, you know, my favorite, a happy wife is a happy life. You guys remember that, men? You heard that? That's very true. Um, so we know this to be, there are things that we know to be true, and yet at the same time, as we see in Joel, there is this battle raging inside of us 
between knowing what we ought to do, sort of our better selves and our broken humanity, our inability to control ourselves, our, our, our baser instincts, and again, our intractable emotions, this, this um, war raging in our soul. So what do we do? How do we, how do we handle this battle? And first, I don't want to say ideally, I want to say actually. What, when, we, when we encounter this struggle, how do we react? What happens in the human heart? And I think what happens in the human heart, what we see in risky business, is that when you're under pressure and you're full of fear and you've got to have your life together and it's intense, you start to act badly. You start to act out. You start to behave badly. Because the truth about people is that we only, as much as we wish it were different, we only have a finite amount of willpower. We only have a finite amount of self-control. And the more we try to keep things together, the more control we try to exercise, the more need we have for a release valve. I mean, this, is, this has got to be why high school kids, junior and senior high school kids in high-pressure environments go crazy. Or if you remember, you remember freshman year in college, the kid who was never allowed to do anything in high school? Did you have one of those friends? Remember how they acted? Maybe you were that kid, you know? And you kind of went a little bit nuts because it was like, finally, I'm not from under my parents. I'm just going to blah. Um, I don't, have you talked about Axel Rose quite yet? Probably not. But that's Axel Rose, you know? He went to church, what, like eight times a week growing up and had a, these insane, ultra-fundamentalist Christian parents. And guess what happened to him? He became Axel Rose. Uh, yeah. And, and this is not, this is total speculation. But I do also wonder, and this is not in my notes, but just, this just occurred to me. The recent state of, um, Painously violent acts from uh, teenage boys, college-age boys, I think has got to be tied into um, sexual frustration and repression. Because we live in a culture that has prioritized um, prosperity, career, finances over relationship. You know, at most cultures today, and over the course of the history of the world, you grew up, you lived in your parents' household, you hit puberty, you got married, boom. You know, and you, and you transition seamlessly from the affection that you received from your parents to the affection you received from your spouse. And now we say to people, especially if you're a Christian, wait 10 to 15 years. You know, I remember I had a buddy who was in um, youth ministry probably late 20s, early 30s, really earnest guy, wonderful Christian man, and he was confessing to me that he went to go get his haircut one day and suddenly realized that he hadn't been touched in about two months. Um, there's God, sorry, that's, that's, you know, seriously, if you're trying to live as an earnest, as an earnest uh, person, an earnest human being, that we only have a finite amount of self-control, and, and when we try to control everything, we have more and more need for release valves. And I, I sort of think of it as the Tiger Woods syndrome. Remember Tiger Woods? Remember him? Um, where his whole life was all about go, 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 do, 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 putt, 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 drive, drive, drive. And he was all about his golf. And he even said it in his confession. I was working so hard and I had so subjugated my will and, and put myself under control that he needed a pretty major release valve. You know, you up the control, you up the need for, for bad behavior. And I'm sure you see that in your own life, right? That, that um, the more stressed out you get, the more given you are to having another drink or uh, buying another thing 
or spending too much time on the computer, or eating too much, or eating too little, or we become angry, we become impatient, we become, uh, you know, abusive. That there's this tug of war between who we know we ought to be and who we actually are uh, has byproducts, has externalities. The tug between what we ought to want and what we actually do want. And I had a wonderful um, conversation with my mortgage broker, who's awesome, awesome Christian guy, like three weeks ago, and he keeps spotting an iPhone, and he's feeling very old because he'd been up like 10 hours the night before trying to get it set up. Um, and somehow we talked about midlife crises, and he said, you know, when I was about 42 years old, things were good, I had a nice family, like three, four kids, job was going well, house, wife, whatever. But there was something inside of me that was just dying, and I went to my wife and I said, honey, it's up to you. Um, I can either uh, get a girlfriend or a Jeep. Which, what do you think? <laughs> and he, he said she, that she chose the Jeep, and he was, he was so thankful because he didn't have the energy for a younger woman. Um, but this is a, I mean, this tension is what, is what creates midlife crises. Right? When you've spent enough time playing by someone else's rules, by your parents' rules, or by your God's rules, or whatever it is, you just come to a point where you can't do it anymore. And again, the, the longer you've worked at it, and the more control you, you've exerted, and the more you've suppressed your humanity, the more explosive the, the reaction is going to be. So what's the answer? Well, let's go back to the rich young ruler. And like I said, I think this guy is Joel, because Joel is rich, and Joel is young, and Joel, even though he doesn't feel like it, he has some power. You know, he's from a segment of the population, and more than that, and I'm reading a little bit into the Jesus story, but you, but you can feel it coming through in the voice of the rich young ruler. They are both earnest people. They want to do the right thing. They're under a lot of pressure. You know, when I hear this guy's a rich young ruler, you know, he runs to Jesus and thought, what, you know, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And my guess is he probably has it from a rich family. He's got to be, right? There are probably no yuppies in ancient Israel or, you know, 20-something hedge fund managers worth $100 million. Um, maybe there were. I don't think so. But he's under the same level of pressure and he wants to get it right. And so he comes to Jesus and he asks this question, what do I have to do? And Jesus gives him an answer and then he doesn't do it. And when I was younger, and maybe this is the way you hear this story, I thought to myself, this guy is pathetic. He asks a question, Jesus is right in front of him. Jesus tells him exactly what to do, answers his question perfectly, and this poor sap just refuses to do it. And when I read this story, especially when I was, you know, like my teenage years, I said, someday I'm going to be the kind of Christian who can give it all up. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to be better than this guy. I'm going to do more than this guy. And I think that's the way this passage is usually read, right? That if only this guy could have gotten himself under control, if he could have just exercised a little bit more willpower, if he could have done the right thing, then he would have received the blessing. He would have received eternal life. And then when it's preached on, it's usually, you know, people, they sometimes take hard passages like this and they try to soften it by sort of changing the language, but it ends up being just as bad. You know what people will say? Well, it's not really about money. It's about, you know, giving up that one thing that you love more than God. How is that at all helpful? There's lots of things that I love more than God. And how am I supposed to give that up? 
And let me say, this is not just a, a Christian idea. This is a secular idea, too, that the need that if we, if we really want something, in this case, this guy really wants eternal life, that you need to subjugate your desires. You need to stuff yourself to get what you really want. You know, I, I had a good friend in college who was incredibly driven and hardworking and had a vision for her future, but she was convinced, and to certain degree that she's right, she's right, if she was going to go to school and get the PhD and become a professor, she was going to have to completely stuff her emotional self and forget all of her needs for relationship and love. Um, and she ended up having a massive anxiety attack and spending some time in the, the emergency room because you can't live like that. But that is a, that's a message in our culture, right? That if you want to pursue a certain career, you got to put off marriage or you got to put off kids. You need to make those hard choices. And that's, uh, that's the way this passage is, you, you know, this guy wasn't able to make the hard choice to get the thing that he wanted. And what a pathetic individual. Well, what I want to say about this passage is that the guy's problem was not his lack of willpower. It was his misunderstanding of himself and Jesus. And we see it right at the beginning. This young guy running up to Jesus, good teacher, teach me, make me strong, make me powerful, tell me what I have to do to inherit eternal life. And I, I can just sort of see Jesus' eyes. I can see this guy running up to like, oh gosh, here we, here we go. Another earnest young person who doesn't understand anything about anything. It reminds me of um, when I was in Berkeley, uh, John Stock came once and gave a testimony, his testimony, or gave a talk to about a thousand people. Um, actually, my wife gave her, gave her testimony of that thing. And in the middle of his talk, the doors burst open and this young kid comes in. He's like, Mr. Saad, I've just been driving an hour in front of a thousand people. I've just been driving for hours and hours and I came to ask you this one question. You know, if you died tonight and you saw God, what would you say to him? It was so awkward and we all felt so bad for him. But I see this guy in the same way, right? Running up to Jesus full of earnest, youthful vigor. John Stott handled it beautifully well and didn't embarrass this kid at all. But I can just see Jesus being like, oh, here, this, here we go again. Um, so what must you do? You really want to know? Follow the commandments. You know the commandments. You, you clearly are a, you're an educated, uh, wealthy young man. You're, you're a Jewish person. You know the commandments. And then this kid says the most ridiculous thing that just about anyone says in the Bible. Um, All these I've kept since I was a boy. Really? I mean, so you've loved the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. You know, you've never lied. You've never coveted. Um, maybe you haven't committed murder or adultery quite yet. Give it time. You know, most heroes in the Bible do. Um, uh, but he clearly, he's completely in denial about who he is. Um, and he still thinks that he has the power and the strength to, to do it on his own. And then I love it. It says... Uh, Jesus looked at him and loved him. I wish I could see that face. I think it would be so. I think it would be love and compassion. He probably wouldn't have nearly as much contempt for him as I do, but I think there would be a little bit of a tinge of, oh, you, you poor, deluded little person. And then, uh, you know, try this on for size. If you've kept all the commandments, then go and sell everything you have and give it to the poor and come follow me, and then you'll have riches in heaven. And it says he walks away sad because he had great wealth. Now, why does Jesus do that? Well, 
Jesus asks this man to do the one thing that he knows that he cannot do in the hope that he will come to see himself as he truly is. It is kind of this slaughtering act of mercy. Jesus is not giving this guy an action plan. He's trying to put him on his knees. He's trying to create a little bit of, of uh, humility and reflection. And the reason Jesus does this, it's not out of, out of spite, it's out of mercy, because he knows how anxious and fearful and earnest this guy is, and he knows that the only way he's ever gonna find the peace that he wants, the only way that he's, only, that he's able to, to handle the, the fear and anxiety and self-control issues and bad behavior, is not by buckling down further than he already has, but by giving up. Not by holding on with clenched fists, but by letting go. And I think that, if you know, we're to crib the um, title of this con the conference, like, that is the risk of grace. But it's also the hope of the gospel, right? That there are two ways to live. And the first way is that it's all up to me. And that's what Joel thinks, and that's what the rich young ruler thinks, and truth be told, that's what I think, and that's what you think. It is all up to me to keep the job, to make the money, to care for the kids, to save for retirement, to care for my spouse, to care for my parents. It is all up to me. And, and let me be said, that's what you know. American culture tells us over and over again. My favorite example, I remember that those, were these playing in Houston, those ING ads where people would carry around their number? with a seven-digit number. It was always a seven-digit number. You know, what, it's like what percentage of the people watching this right now do you think have a million dollars in a bank account in their savings? It was so crushing. But the message was, it is up to you. Get it together, plan for the future. And that message will destroy you because life is never under control. It's always absurd. Things happen that you can't control. But the second way to live is it's all up to God. And the more we can believe that, the more we can trust that, the more life, peace, hope, the more that fear will be chased away. Now I wanna say something about, 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 this, about this risk, because what I'm really gonna invite you to do is, is you know, not today, but it's, you know, to take that risk of, of taking all the, really every day, taking all these things you worry about and saying, here, I can't do this anymore. I want you to take care of it. What if there is no God? What if this is all a big farce? You know, what if that German philosopher was right, that it's just a massive set of projections? And, and furthermore, maybe there is a God, but he just doesn't care. You know, maybe Thomas Jefferson was right, and he just sort of wound up the universe and let it go. What if I take this plunge and I drown? What if I give up control and, and God sort of, you know, drops me? Um, what if I give up and things fall apart? Well, let me say two things about that. Number one, there is a much better chance that God exists than that you will ever have your life under control. <laughs> if you want to talk odds. You know, at least there's a chance that there's a God. There's no chance that you're ever going to get things under control. And the second thing is that things will fall apart you will come to the end of yourself sooner or later life exempts no one at some point all of your feeble efforts at 
keeping it all together, will be shown up for what they are. But when that happens, and this is what I used to say to my, you know, I used to say to my middle schoolers and high schoolers in New York, because you preach this message to kids who are in school and they're being told all day long that life is linear and cause and effect, and if they get good grades, they'll go to a good school and go to a college and get a good job and be happy. I said, you're not gonna believe me now, but when you wake up sophomore year next to someone you don't recognize, remember this, that no one in the Bible comes to a genuine faith to a genuine reliance upon God until they have no other option. It's never a choice. It's always something that God does to them and not something they reach out for. And that actually is God's grace. It's those moments when we come to the end of ourselves are God showing us that we are not him and we were never meant to be. I love how Gerard Fortas says it. He says, um, God wants to take us unhappy little gods and make us into true humans. And that only happens through failure because we are holding on, you know, from my cold, dead hand. And God says, very well. Because it really is, it's, it's, the, it's the undoing of the garden. It's the undoing of Adam and Eve. You know, we, we want to be God. We want to be in control. We want to know good and evil. And all of life is disabusing us of those um, unhealthy desires. You weren't meant to have it under control. You're not meant to be the creator. You're meant to be a creature. You're meant to live in reliance. That's why Jesus says no one can enter the kingdom of heaven unless they enter it like a little child. You know, they say that, uh, and, and Will McDavid's, um, if you haven't bought it yet, his little guide to Genesis is incredible and just shows this so clearly through these, through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph, all these men that only come to genuine faith and reliance upon God when they come to the end of themselves. And it happens with uh, King David and it happens with Paul, you know, formerly Saul. It just happens over and over again. You know, they say that pride cometh before the fall, but what also seems to be true is that wisdom only cometh after a fall. Um, I was in, uh, I was speaking with uh, uh, Duke, I think seminarian recently, who's also, Duke, there's some partnership that Duke is doing with like the HEB Family Foundation, I don't know. And they're trying to figure out um, who's getting, like who's connecting with 20s and 30s and what is getting 20s and 30s people, young people into church. And I honestly said, I said, if you can find a church that is truly drawing 20s and 30s who didn't grow up in the church, who don't know Christianity, who and who are genuinely getting this message and not some performance, triumphalistic perversion of Christianity, I would love to see that church. And I felt like I really cater be. Um, but I thought about it afterwards and I said, you know the organization that I know of that has gotten the most young, unchurched people into church? A. Right? Because they, they're broken and they go and they discover this God who cares for them and who holds things together and they experience it. You know, Mary Carr talked about this, you know, who like would never would have become a Christian in a million years. I mean, she was actively trying not to become a Christian, but she became a Christian through AA because she discovered a God who loved her and who held her in the midst of her sin. And guess what? There's only one God like that. I love what John Zoll says that, that, that you know, if you believe in a God um, that saves you in the midst of your sinfulness, that's Jesus. And you may not know, it's sort of like, you know, having a crush on the girl on the other side of the cafeteria and you don't know what her name is, but you know it's that girl. That the, the 12-step God is, is Jesus. And I think that's the good news for Joel in Risky Business, 
And it's a good news for us because I know everyone in this room has had a breakdown. And when you have that breakdown, it does actually kind of lead to wisdom and to freedom. And I love that Christie Business sort of ends where it starts. And guess what? He actually gets into Princeton. Remember that? Princeton could use a guy like Joel. <laughs> Remember, because the interviewee shows up and we won't talk about what was happening at Joel's house. See, you've seen this movie. I love, you guys are such sinners. I love it. Um, Princeton could use a, a guy like Joel, but his father comes up to him and he says, you know, Joel, what have I been telling you all this year? Sometimes you just gotta say, what the heck? You know, and, and, and take a chance. And there's something to that, isn't there? What the heck? Take the risk. How, how's, how is having it all under control working out anyway? <laughs> you know, how is it going with you, with your career, with your spouse, with your kids? Maybe it's time to try a different option. You know, and I'm saying that, believe me, believe me, I'm saying that to myself about taking all this and just saying, here, take it. You know, I can't manage it. I'm kind of scared of myself. I'm rather neurotic and apparently sort of self-destructive. But I'm just going to give it to you, you know, my hopes, my fears, my dreams, my anxieties. And because that's the truth, if there's God, that's the truth anyway. And we do everything we can to shut it out and deny it and to not look at it. But it's true anyway. And that's the only place where I think um, true hope is to be found, to quote, uh, to quote Cranmer. So um, I'm about done. I guess I'll just say, you know, you're going to crash and burn anyway. Why not take the risk today and just give it over? Um, amen. Sorry. All right.